there. You see in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And we could all take these words to heart. Live in such a way that those who know you but don't know God will come to know God because they know you. And I know back when I was in the workforce, I always uh, told our people it was a lot easier to draw flies with honey than it was with vinegar. And every 60 seconds you spend upset is a minute of happiness you'll never get back. Also, we have some quotes, I think, that are pretty good. Plow deep while sluggards sleep. Never leave that till tomorrow, which you can do today. Now, one of, the, one of the first rules I learned when I retired, though, was never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. But my wife doesn't like that rule. And the last quote, and these again are all from Benjamin Franklin in the preface to Poor Richard's Almanac. Three removes are as bad as a fire. I would like to uh, ask everyone to please turn over to uh, Psalm 119 again. that better? And it, isn't it a beautiful morning here in the land of enchantment? You know, I come from the land of opportunity and we don't have many mornings like this. Well, we do in November, December, and January maybe, but uh, not in uh, July. We want to pick up in Psalm 119 at verse 113. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. And also, let's turn over to Second Peter, the first chapter. I want to read this because I, I don't want anyone getting the idea that we're concentrating on law to the exclusion of everything else. You know, we, we mentioned in a couple of our classes, or in the introduction in one class, I think, that we really cannot separate Divine will and divine law. In reading from Second Peter chapter 1, we want to read the first 11 verses. 
Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And while we have concentrated quite a bit this week and intend to continue, Lord willing, on these great and precious promises and what's really involved with that, certain laws that are associated with those, I don't want to give anyone the idea that it's not absolutely essential that we develop certain qualities that we often call the fruit of the Spirit. A knowledge of these great and precious promises will not do us one iota of good if we don't do what is said in the next few verses here we're going to read. We see in verse 5, and beside this, beside what we've read there about the great, exceeding great and precious promises, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love. For if these things be in you, that's these, this fruit of the Spirit, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, we were talking yesterday about the sovereignty of God. And I mentioned that we would get into it a lot more this morning. We have defined God's sovereignty as the possession of supreme power and excellence, unlimited in extent and application, with absolute freedom to exercise these qualities as a matter of exclusive privilege or prerogative. We not only have attributed supreme excellence to God, but also supreme power. Both are unlimited in extent and application. Is not this possession of supreme excellence really rooted in certain divine attributes which have been abundantly revealed to us through divine revelation. 
And even though God can or could do whatsoever He desires, will not His possession of these divine attributes preclude Him from doing anything which is not consistent with them? We can rest assured that our Heavenly Father will always do the right thing because of His inherent righteousness. Now, in the legal system in our country today, the concept of sovereignty, and I'm not talking about God's sovereignty, but the concept of sovereignty still exists, and whatever stability this country has rests on this concept along with others. One of the definitions for sovereignty in Black's Law Dictionary is the supreme, the absolute, the uncontrollable power by which any independent state is governed. Another definition, the power to do everything in a state without accountability, to make laws, to execute and apply them, to impose and collect taxes, and levy contributions, to make war or peace, and a host of other things. The complete system of laws, regulations, and governmental directives, which are really the basis of commerce and government, and are essential for creating and maintaining some semblance of stability in this country or in any country, are really rooted in the concept of sovereignty. Don't think that we are saying that this country or any country is operated in complete accordance with divine principles because they certainly are not. However, we do know that our Heavenly Father is very cognizant of the actions of this country and other countries, and He guides these actions through divine manipulation of events which are critical to the accomplishment of His plan and purpose. If we can recognize that there are certain inherent powers which give rise to a system of laws contributing to the establishment maintenance the establishment and the maintenance of whatever stability we might have in the society in which we live can we not better comprehend a divine sovereignty that extends over all things and now i want to talk a little bit about rejection of god's sovereignty and you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I first prepared this class, well, back in 1990. And this was uh, right after President Reagan had uh, left office. And you probably remember when President Reagan, one of the things that, that I think he accomplished during his presidency was to break down communism to some extent. You remember he went over and, and told uh, Gorbachev to tear down the wall in, in Berlin. 
And we really saw a, a movement toward uh, establishing more democratic ideals and institutions. And, and when I, like I say, when I prepared this class almost 20 years ago, I, I was thinking primarily after the breakup of the Soviet Union, a lot of the countries in Eastern Europe suddenly wanted to establish a democracy. And, of course, we know that in this country and in other countries, we are considered to have a democratic form of government. And the theory is that sovereignty in a democracy ultimately resides in the people. Now, we know there are still countries in the world today which are considered to be a monarchy where a king is the head of government and the theory is that sovereignty resides in the king. And you know, we've, we've seen particularly since George Bush has been in the presidency, he has really stressed democracy and establishing democracy in a lot of countries that have never known it. And we know that according to Bible prophecies, and we are hoping and praying for that day to come soon, there will come a time or there will come a day when a theocratic form of government or one in which God is the head will be extant throughout the earth. We know there are several phases in the development of this theocracy. The main phase, the main event that is going to initiate this will be the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, when we consider recent developments, and I'm, you know, when I say recent, I'm going back 20 years and even up to this day when, you know, one of the main things that President Bush keeps stressing about Iraq, they want a democratic form of government. I'm not sure they could really handle that, but be that as it may, that's what you've all heard President Bush say that, that, that all people yearn for a form of democracy. I, I'm, I'm not sure I completely agree with that because I don't think some people can handle it. But we would say that if these various countries are allowed to pursue their present course, and establish democratic forms of government with sovereignty residing in the people, there's one obvious result of that. These countries are going to be very reluctant to honor Jesus Christ's claim to be king all over the earth, or over all the earth, when He does return. You know, these countries that have thrown off a dictatorship or some oppressive form of government and are, uh, you know, in the infancy stages of democracy are going to be very reluctant to submit to someone who says he is going to be king over all the earth. You know, in, in common everyday language, they're going to say, well, we just came out from under that. We don't want to go back to it. Of course, they don't realize that Christ will be a righteous, benevolent king and will not be the type, of, the type of oppressive leaders that they have experienced in their countries. 
And you know, when we when you stop and think about it, this desire to not accept Christ as King over all the earth, when you couple these intense feelings or this rejection of God's sovereignty in appointing His Son to be King over the all the earth, when you couple these feelings with the opposition of the Roman Catholic Church to what they perceive to be the Antichrist, we should have no difficulty at all in envisioning the terrible conflict that we know will ensue between Christ and His saints in these countries, many of which, as we know, are predominantly Roman Catholic. And we know the Pope will try to rally the world around him to oppose Christ. And we know that that will be a very futile effort, and we, we see the, the conclusion of that or the end result of that in many books of the Bible, particularly in the Revelation or the Apocalypse. This rejection will result in a complete subjugation of these countries by Christ and the saints. We know that our Heavenly Father brings about things in the development of His plan and purpose through what often appears to be very natural manipulations of world events. With the establishment of democratic forms of government, with the underlying concept that sovereignty resides in the people, it is very easy to visualize the idea of God's sovereignty over all the earth being completely rejected by the inhabitants of such countries. But as we have already said, this rejection will result in a complete subjugation of these countries by Christ and the saints. And we know that this idea of democratic institutions, it was one of the real outgrowths of the French Revolution. And it's one of those spirits like frogs that have gone out to engulf the world. But anyway, that's uh, all I want to say at this point about the sovereignty of God and also how there will be an attempt to reject His sovereignty, but we know it will be a foolish exercise on the part of those opposed to it. We now want to turn to what we often call the fall of man. And as we begin our consideration this morning of the fall of man, we would say at the outset that we're going to be developing extensively the legal concept of condemnation as it has been decreed upon fallen man by our Heavenly Father through the exercise of His sovereignty. We will also be developing the idea of a gracious offer being made to man by our Heavenly Father, whereby this condemnation may be removed. In our analysis this morning, we hope to introduce the concepts, the legal concepts of an offer and an acceptance competency or mental capacity and understanding, the process of adoption, 
covenants, a contractual relationship, the concept of probation, among others. We know that we have some definitions Let's see. You know, we have uh, defined the term condemn a couple of ways. One, and this is in your handouts, to find or adjudge guilt and to a judge or to sentence. Both of these definitions are very fitting when we examine the biblical account of the fall of man, which gave rise to man being condemned by God because of disobedience to divine law. What we often term Edenic law was given to man by the Lord God in the following specifics. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what we often call the Edenic law that we find in Genesis chapter 2. We would ask the question, are not the terms of this divine decree, and that's all we could call it, a divine decree, are not the terms of this very simple and get right to the point. There are only two options given in this law, to die or not to die. We know from the Genesis record that man was disobedient to the commandment and did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This act of disobedience on the part of man has brought about a sentence of death upon all of the human family, as the Apostle Paul stated, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, so that all have sinned. From this verse alone, and there are other verses, it should be clear that the entire human race has been adversely affected as a result of the one man, Adam, being disobedient to the Edenic law. We can understand why Adam was held accountable to the Edenic law in its terms, but we may ask the question, why did the rest of the human race, who had no personal involvement in this situation, why were they also affected by the transgression of the Edenic law. Now, if we try to answer this question from a human standpoint, we might say, well, this is a logical question. And if we allow our fleshly, and I emphasize fleshly, reasoning to carry this question to what appears to be its logical conclusion we will find ourselves also believing the lie of the serpent. This lie initiated the, the unfortunate sequence of events that culminated in the condemnation of the human race. 
However, rather than depending upon our fleshly reasoning, let us approach this matter as we find it revealed to us in the divine record. We can also observe the practical effects of this condemnation on the human race, and we can relate it to certain legal principles with which we are familiar. When Adam transgressed and breached the terms of the Edenic law, all of his descendants were in his loins, and in a legal sense, they were all constituted or adjudged sinners. The marginal rendering for the phrase, for that all have sinned in Romans 5.12 is, in whom all have sinned. The diaglot says, for this reason, as through one man sin entered into the world, in whom all have sinned, and through sin death, so also death passed upon all men. When we say that all of Adam's descendants have been constituted or adjudged sinners, we are not imputing any moral guilt or responsibility for Adam's transgression to his progeny. We are told that some had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. We find that in Romans 5 verse 14. Yet, from a practical standpoint, the result is the same, as we can see from the phrase, For if through the offense of one many be dead, and we find that in Romans 5.15, we could say that Adam became a sinner while his descendants were made sinners. While the descendants of Adam are not responsible for or guilty of his transgression, we have been put in a position of being condemned through our relationship to Adam. This condition, historically referred to as Adamic condemnation, is alluded to very clearly, and we read these verses yesterday, but they certainly bear repeating, as I said, this condition, historically referred to as Adamic condemnation, is alluded to very clearly in the following verses. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I think we can all agree that the basis of God's gracious offer of salvation 
to fallen man really rest in His infinite love and wisdom, but we take nothing away from the majesty and compassion of God by recognizing legal principles and concepts that are inherent in His plan of salvation. The recognition of these principles, and we've stated this already, the, this recognition is very much in keeping with the sentiments that are expressed in many of the Psalms concerning the knowledge of God's law and the love and respect which should accompany such knowledge. We've already read from Psalm 119, Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Our Heavenly Father is certainly a God of love and mercy, but let us always remember that a certain mode of belief and behavior is necessary for those who one day hope to partake of God's nature. And is not this hope of partaking of God's nature all the more wonderful to contemplate when we contrast it with the Adamic nature which we now possess? As we read in 1 John, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall see Him as He is. That's from 1 John 3, verse 2. We now want to discuss the concept of a gracious offer being extended to fallen man by deity, whereby this native or this inherited condemnation may be removed. Among the definitions of the term offer is a promise, a commitment to do or to refrain from doing some specified thing in the future. The offer creates a power of acceptance, permitting the offeree or the one to whom the offer is extended by accepting the offer to transform the offerer's promise into a contractual obligation. As we stated yesterday, I believe, for a, for a valid obligation to be created, there has to be an offer, there has to be an acceptance. And this creates the situation where a contract or a valid obligation can be created. We know also that to constitute an offer to constitute an offer there has to be language of promise and a sufficiently definite statement of terms so that an acceptance may be made without suggesting or altering the terms or without suggesting new terms. In considering the gracious offer which deity has extended to fallen man, we are not dealing with an illusory promise. Kind of, you know, we mentioned earlier, we kind of compared an illusory promise to an optical illusion. It's a promise which can mean different things to different people. It's defined as a promise which is so indefinite that it cannot be enforced or which by virtue of provisions 
or conditions contained in the promise itself is one whose fulfillment is optional or entirely discretionary on the part of the promisor. Since such a promise, an illusory promise, does not constitute a legally binding obligation, it is not sufficient as consideration for a reciprocal promise, and thus it cannot create a valid contract. The definitions we are using here relate to situations dealing with relations between and among men in their primary application, but we know that some very valid comparisons can be drawn when we consider these definitions and their underlying principles as they relate to God's plan of salvation. It's very interesting to note in our earlier comments concerning an offer that there must be present language of promise and a sufficiently definite statement of terms. We further found that such language of promise may not be illusory or deceptive, thereby giving rise to such fulfillment being optional or discretionary on the part of the promisor. As we begin to examine the gracious offer which our Heavenly Father has extended to the human race, we hope to show clearly that very specific language of promise is utilized and that the ultimate fulfillment is certain and sure with absolutely no element of uncertainty or deception on the part of God in extending such an offer. To confirm this statement of intent, or this statement of terms, on the part of God, let us refer to the book of Isaiah. And we have a couple of quotes from Isaiah up on the screen. Incline thine ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Could we find a more definite statement of terms of the offer that God has extended to the human family than what we have read here in Isaiah 55? We are told in this that as sure as the rain from heaven comes down, causes the earth to bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
we can be just as sure of what God has told us as we can of this rain that comes down from heaven. For we read, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. We have discussed already the condemned condition that we commonly call Adamic condemnation that we have inherited as a consequence of Adam's disobedience. But we have not really spent much time on the very good conditions that were originally established in the Garden of Eden. Suffice it to say for right now, we can say that these very good conditions were shattered by man's failure to remain obedient to the brief but precise terms of the Edenic law that we discussed a moment ago, under which man had been placed. We know from the Genesis record that immediate execution of the sentence of death was not literally carried out at that time, but that certain judgments were rendered at the time of the transgression or shortly thereafter. Genesis 3, and we've got the quote up there from Genesis 3, 14 through 19, shows us the judgments that were pronounced upon the participants in the transgression in the order in which they had participated in the transgression. As we read in Genesis 3, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb, the herb of the field. 
And we can all relate to this last part. Well, we can relate to all of it, but particularly this last part. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thy taken. And as Brother Glenn stressed last night, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. As I say this very concisely in these few verses, shows us the judgments that were pronounced upon the participants in the transgression, that being the serpent, the woman, the man. And these were pronounced in the order in which they had participated. And we can take great comfort in these verses, and particularly we can take great comfort in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, talking about the enmity between the serpent, the seed of the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Our time is just about up, so I'm going to conclude our class by saying we find no reference to Adam being doomed to return to the dust prior to his disobedience of the Edenic law. In view of this, is it not logical to conclude that there had indeed been a sentence pronounced upon him which in effect defiled him and became a physical law of his being which has also been transmitted to all of his posterity? This is plain and simple what we call Adamic condemnation. Thank you.